Our Bible reading for today is Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is, this is precious. If you've, if you've brought us here, Father, to church, then we're grateful. If you've brought us through singing and praying and fellowship, then we're grateful for those wonderful gifts. And now we get to hold a Bible in our laps and hear the word of God. Lord, this is a, this is a gift and this, this moment is precious. And Please, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, we pray, whether we're new or well acquainted with Christianity. Speak to us in power and deep conviction and truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a saying in English, beggars can't be choosers. You know that phrase? If you do, you probably know. It means if you're a beggar and you're begging something for free, then you haven't got a menu of options. You, know, you haven't got loads and loads of choice because you're begging. So beggars can't be choosers. You get the idea. Where I live in the vicarage, um, we, because it's obviously a church house, you get people coming to the door and asking for all sorts of things. And I made up my mind a few years ago, if people ask me for food, I'm always going to give them food. You know, I, I find that a very genuine request. If you're hungry, I will feed you. So we've had the joy of doing that for a number of years um, here and there. Just occasionally you get someone who comes to the door and they ask for food and I say, here you go. And they look a bit miffed. You know, <laughs> What's this food that you've given me? I'm like... What, you came to my door asking for food, you know, as a beggar. Um, I've given you food. It feels like you can't really be a chooser in this situation, you know. Uh, thank you. would be nice. But I, I'd bite my tongue. Um, and this man, this man in the Bible story, Luke chapter 18, he is a beggar. He's a blind beggar. And he is given to us, I think, as a perfect example of this phrase, beggars can't be choosers. Indeed, I would go so far as to say I think he's a perfect example of what it means spiritually to be a Christian. I think he's located at a key juncture in Luke's gospel, a crucial moment in the Bible, and he's held up as this example of what it means to be a beggar who can't be a chooser and come away glad. Wow! I can't believe how good God is. I'll, I'll try and explain. I want to convince you that this really is what I think it is and how important a picture it could be. 
We're returning to a series in Luke's Gospel after Christmas, okay? So if you're a regular here, I just need you to cast your mind back before Christmas. We're early December when we left off with the previous passage. In fact, if you have a Bible open, just, just look with me at what's happened in chapter 18 of Luke. You have this here? So just if you turn back a page, you see the start of chapter 18. We had the parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember her? She just carried on and carried on. She persisted, she didn't give up. So she's a bit like the beggar, you know, she just kept shouting out, give me some justice. Then, what's the next story? The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Did you see that one there? So we have the, the, the virtuous, ultimately, tax collector who just um, asked for one thing, which is for mercy. And that's exactly what the beggar in the story today asks for. Mercy, son of David. Okay, so sort of spotting a theme emerging. Persistent, they ask for mercy. Then you had, <clears throat> what's the next thing? Verse 15, the little children and Jesus. And Jesus says, she says, it's good to act like a little child. No prestige about you. And lo and behold, you get to the end of the chapter, you get this beggar who has no prestige about him. And then what the last one we did before Christmas was the, the rich and the kingdom of God, starting in verse 18 with that rich young ruler. Do you remember him? He was actually the negative example because he went away sad after encountering Jesus because he was too smitten with his possessions. And now Luke leads us by the hand, as it were, by the narrative hand, all the way to Jericho. We're on the road into Jericho, and we meet this real-life flesh-and-bones beggar. So no more parables, no more made-up stories, good as they are, but this is, this is a real person who you, you will be able to meet one day in glory and talk to. The other um, summary example is Zacchaeus, who we'll get to next week, and he is, I think, um, second in, in, a, in a twin set of real life examples that are put here for a reason. I think what Luke is doing is drawing together the lessons, particularly of chapter 18, possibly for the whole gospel, and saying, after everything Jesus has taught you, he's heading for Jerusalem, it's, we're nearly done, but after everything that he's taught you, let me just sort of summarize it with this story, this, this, this man that Jesus encountered, this beggar, followed by Zacchaeus. Make sense? If you still don't believe me that Luke is gathering together lots of threads here, then look, this is also Jesus' last healing. It's his last miracle before he goes to his death. So there seems to be something climactic about it. This is the, the last thing he's able to do miraculously before they kill him. And beggars can't be choosers. There's something about this guy. Having said all of that, beggars can be choosers. What? Yeah, <laughs> beggars can be choosers because there's this amazing moment in the story where Jesus gets down to this guy's level and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 41. What? That's not what you're supposed to say to beggars. It doesn't really work, especially not if you're the son of David, the Messiah. But Jesus says, in effect, my son, beggars can be choosers. I'm so full of grace and mercy towards you. What do you want? <laughs> wow. And do you detect therein the music, the, the theme tune, the backing track of the gospel? Does it taste like the gospel to you? Because on the one hand, beggars can't be choosers and the only way to be saved is to come to Jesus Christ and say I, have, I know who you are I need your mercy I've got no other hope yes I hear it I taste it and yet on the other hand Jesus is so full of overwhelming grace that when you say that he, he says so what do you want me to do for you I love you what do you need <gasps> I don't know about you it, it has the aroma of life about it to me it, it feels like a, an appropriate thing to be building up towards in Luke's gospel Jesus is so full of mind-bending, heart-changing, life-altering generosity that he treats us 
Not like beggars, and yet like choosers. I love Jesus. And um, <clears throat> just before we dive into the detail, um, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. The Bible is full of pictures and propositions. And uh, lots of the propositions are often located in the letters in the Bible. You know, there's letters like Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Peter, things like that, and they're letters to the church. Lots of propositions, and you can derive so, so much doctrine and joy from there. But the Bible is also full of lots of pictures, and they're stories, and they're people, and there's flesh on the bones of the propositions. And what we're often dealing with in the Gospels, and what we're dealing with today, is a picture, if you like, or a, a story of a person. And both of those things, the propositions and the pictures, are, are beautiful. In fact, I think they come together to give us a living, breathing Christianity. I'm convinced that this, these stories like we're dealing with today are like um, one side of a coin. You know on a coin you've got heads and tails? So on the tail side you tend to get more writing and on the head side you tend to get more picture. Well, if you think of it that way, you know, the, the letters in the Bible are a bit more like the tail side. You get more writing, you get more information. But on the tail side you get the image. <laughs> and um, here, what we're dealing with today is one example of that. I'm, I'm about to see an image of a person who really did come to Christ and how Jesus dealt with him. Of course, the whole coin tells one particular story, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and whichever way you turn it, you receive the same gospel message of salvation. Now, our story actually begins in verse 31 with something very important. So I'm not going to take you straight to the beggar. I'm actually going to take you to the, to the little bit beforehand, which is rather easy to skip over. On... One of your sheets, you should see a sermon outline. And it says there two things. Firstly, Jesus has a mission. And secondly, Jesus has mercy. And then at the end, there's something you must have. I've also put an outline of Luke's gospel in case you want a refresher of, of that. I'm hoping that today will be a big encouragement to you if you feel small, if you feel insignificant, if you feel sidelined or out of choices. Firstly then, Jesus has a mission. This is in verses 31 to 34. Jesus has a mission. Do you see it there? It says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Verse 34 does make me smile. You see that? It's like a triple statement of total ignorance. <laughs> the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> so they really didn't have a clue. Do you understand what Jesus was on about? He's saying he's on a mission. He's spelling it out in advance. It's very important. He had to go to Jerusalem. He had to kill, be killed by the Romans. When he says Gentiles, that's the Bible's word for non-Jewish people. He had to be spat at, flogged, killed, and resurrected. And he knew it in advance. Isn't that amazing? There is a, a popular but inaccurate view of Jesus as a generalist and a do-gooder, sort of like a hippie dude who floated around in the Holy Land trying to do good wherever he could. You know, it's quite, it's quite popular. It makes quite a good Hollywood Jesus. He, you know, he sort of communicated well and did a lot of good for the world before he was tragically killed. That view 
It's just like a fraction of the truth about Jesus. It doesn't do, doesn't do him justice at all. It's a little like saying, there was this guy, Winston Churchill, and he was an MP, and that's all you need to know about him. You know, like, oh, that, hang on a minute, that, that's true, he was an MP, but there's so much more to Winston Churchill. You know, tell me about the Second World War, tell me about the Navy, and tell me about Hitler and all the battles that he fought and how he led the country. You know, tell me the story. And just so with Jesus, you, know, you have to know more about Jesus than that he did a bit of good. Tell me, would you, about him being the Messiah, the Lord, the Prince of Heaven, the Chosen One. Tell me, sorry, why the spit? And what is this about saliva and floggings and how he had to be killed? Tell me about that. Tell me about how he had to go to Jerusalem as the epicenter of it all. And, and then you must tell me about the resurrection. What is it about that? Why the naked humiliation? Why the jeers and the mockery? Why the tomb instead of the throne? I think it crystallizes into a question which I'd, I'd love to press upon people. I'd love to press it on you today. Why did Jesus have to die? Don't just tell me you're interested in Jesus. Don't just tell me you like him. Don't even just tell me that you love him, although I want you to love him. Just tell me, so why did he have to die? Why is this his mission? Because if you can, then I will see in you all the pieces coming together and I will be able to tell that story again and again and again because I've heard it from you. Jesus has a mission. <clears throat> I went to see a film last month um, and it was called Godzilla Minus One and I'm grateful to um, Tom Ash and Ellie for introducing me to Godzilla movies. And uh, they said, look, we love Godzilla movies, will you come with us? I was like, sure. I didn't know that there was American Godzilla movies and there's Japanese Godzilla movies. Did you know they sort of, com sort of compete to tell the Godzilla story? I had no idea. But this was a Japanese Godzilla movie and um, <clears throat> this is, this is going to be a small spoiler so if you happen to be seeing it tonight and cover your ears. It's just after World War II, um, the Allies have dropped atomic bombs on Japan and so there's all sorts of radioactive stuff happening in the ocean off, this, off Japan. And as such, there's this giant Godzilla animal that's about to climb out of the ocean and wreak havoc on Japan. And he does that and he's ferocious and terrifying and, and he's got massive armor plating and huge teeth and nothing can stop him. In fact, they try everything to stop Godzilla. You know, they, they try shelling him with enormous bombs and they try wrapping a giant net around him. Nothing seems to work and Tokyo is totally at the mercy of this giant monster. Until our hero, an honorable kamikaze pilot from the Second World War who happened to make it out alive, he realizes there is one way I think I could kill Godzilla. If I get my World War II plane out of the hangar where it's gathering dust and I pack it with explosives and I fly it into Godzilla's open mouth, then I think I can kill this beast. And so he, you know, he dusts off the plane and he fills it with bombs and then he manages to fly up in the air and he's looking for his opportunity to fly right into Godzilla's gaping maw. And he thinks, if I can just do this, then I think I can save my entire city. And nobody really knows what he's up to until he's, he's there and he's flying in his plane. He's on a direct sight into Godzilla's mouth. And just at the crucial moment when the nuclear reactor is at its greatest, um, Godzilla opens his mouth and... And Godzilla dies. And our kamikaze hero, Kiyuchi Shikoshama, is the incredible hero of the day. Such that as the Tokyo residents realize what he's doing, you know, they see him flying his plane into the open mouth. They in awe of what he's doing and they stand on the deck of the ship or they stand on the shoreline saluting him. In Japan at that time, you know, kamikaze is this great honor to give your life for 
protecting others, and they suddenly realise what he's doing. I cried. <laughs> I cried in the Godzilla movie, I don't mind telling you, as I realised what he's doing. I was thinking, this is so like Jesus. And it is so like Jesus. You know, as, as, as Jesus deliberately flies the, the plane of his life into the gaping jaws of God's judgment, he, he planned it. He had a mission. As he's, as, as, if it's like God's judgment, the, the great jaws of God's righteous judgment clamp down on Jesus. The rest of us. Have you ever had this experience? It's like you stand there, you see Jesus, you understand what he's done for you and you, oh my goodness, I, I, can't, I, never, I never even realised. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you do, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the wonder story, isn't it? It's the mission. Everything comes together as you realise what Jesus is doing. If you don't, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love you to see this. I'd love this to coalesce in your heart and in your mind. Jesus defeats sin and death when he, when he, when he flies into Godzilla's jaws as he, like, as he heads towards Jerusalem. I say sin and death because it's not enough for Jesus to beat death. Death is sad, but death is just the presenting issue. Sin is the big problem that Jesus had to deal with. So if Jesus is able to have God's judgment clamped down on him on the cross, then he's able to, to blow up not just death from the inside, but, but, but sin. And sin is the thing that causes death. Ever since the Garden of Eden, that's been true. If you're reading Bible in a Year with us at the moment, um, not Bible in a Year, the Bible devotions in Genesis, then you'll know we read about that today. Jesus was blowing up the monster of death and sin from the inside, and that happens on Good Friday in real life. Jesus was on a mission. That's the first thing. Second thing, Jesus has mercy. And let's take it down, as it were, from 30,000 feet to this blind beggar by the side of the road. Jesus has mercy, verses 35 to 43. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the side of the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, anyone, anyone just tell me, what did they tell him? They told him to be quiet, and before that, they said, oh, well, this is what's happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Okay. Now, I would love us to just try, we're going to try and recreate the atmosphere on the Jericho Road, okay? I need a little bit from you. I just want you to be the crowd, and can you all say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by? Can you do that? Very good. Would you mind, you can say that over and over again. We're going to get a hubbub. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. 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 Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Be quiet, they said. Don't bother him. No one cares about you. Son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, you can stop. <laughs> you see how, you see how in amongst the hubbub, the curiosity, oh, look at that. It's, that, it's that local celebrity, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. One voice stands out above it all. He's just hollering, he's just shouting because he's desperate. If you're absolutely desperate for mercy and you're a blind beggar and this is your one shot, then you do that because this is your chance. And beggars can't be choosers, right? He, there's something, there's all sorts going on here. There's all sorts of illustrates what it means to cling to Jesus. If you get one shot at the son of David, then you go for it. And he's not an idle curiosity. He's the son of David and he's passing by and take your shot while you can. 
This marks out the beggar. You know, the crowd there, just, he's, Jesus is passing by, see him if you like, but the beggar is desperate. He recognizes his need of Jesus. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. And mercy is this big, meaty Bible word. Um, it comes up 18 times in the Psalms in particular. So it's a big Psalm word. You know, when people were crying out for mercy throughout the Bible, they'd say, have mercy on me, O God. And so when this man uses that word, have mercy on me, he's in the rich vein of biblical thought when you're in trouble and you just need God. It's fascinating here because he also says, son of David, have mercy on me. You see that? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That is amazing. I mean, it's almost unprecedented in Luke's gospel for someone to call Jesus the son of David. He does it again, he's twice, verse 38 and verse 39. It's a direct messianic title. You know, you, you hear Christmas Eve, some of you Christmas Eve morning, and, and Ben preached that sermon, 2 Samuel 7, where we had the big, long genealogy of Jesus leading all the way down from David, all the way down to Jesus. Well, it's because Jesus is the son of David. He's in the royal dynasty of David. So when this blind beggar by the side of the road says, son of David, have mercy on me, he's saying, I know who you are. I'm actually the blindest person in town. You know, I, I haven't even laid eyes on you, Jesus, but I know exactly who you are. Isn't that amazing? Though he was blind, he had spotted something about Jesus that the rest of the crowd hadn't. I know you're, you're the Messiah, and you're the one that we've been waiting for for generations in my country. And what does Jesus, the son of David, the long-promised king, the goat, if you like, do? You know, goat, my children call. They like to pick which footballer is the goat, the greatest of all time. Well, it seems to me that Jesus is the biblical goat. What does he do? Well, verse 40, he stopped. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? He stopped. Like, why? Why stop? Why not pass by? On your mission to Jerusalem, why not have greater things in store? Why not? And yet he stopped. Love that. And ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that amazing grace? You know that song, Amazing Grace, which we'll sing? It's just, it is amazing grace when you encounter it, isn't it? Amazing mercy. He hears the desperate shout above the crowd. You know, so many people saying things to Jesus that day. So many things that people would have been at him about. And yet he pricks up his ears. And is, that, is that someone saying, son of David, have mercy on me? He doesn't despise the stinky beggar, you know, the, the man who was probably unwashed, who had no great social security or anything impressive about him, but he cares for that man. He hears that the man has faith already. I think inherent in that little phrase, son of David, have mercy on me, is so much faith. And he is confident already in who Jesus is. He just draws it out with what he's about to say. And he doesn't think he, it's beneath him, Jesus, to ask, what can I do for you? Amazing, amazing grace. It's rare enough to get a boss who treats you that way, isn't it? If you get a boss who's really refreshing and down to earth and caring at work, oh, amazing, I love bosses like that. But then if you get a son of David, if you get a Messiah like that, I would think that's enough to make my life. I was reading a, a, a bit of a Rebecca McLaughlin book to one of my kids this week, um, 10 Things Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And um, she just gives a little story about one of her friends who came to read about Jesus. And this friend said, I was actually embarrassed about how much I liked Jesus. He was just, I, was, I was just so refreshed 
I thought, I've really embarrassingly drawn to you, Jesus, in the pages of the Bible. You know what I mean? He's just so attractive in the way he behaves, and you get it here too. The beggar says, verse 41, Lord, I want to see. So he had this medical need. He really wanted to be able to see. But of course, he's actually seen far more than all the crowd who have 20-20 vision. Jesus says to him, verse 42, Jesus, um, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So here we have, look, this is the actual miracle that this, is, this episode has been building up to. The man says, oh, I really want my sight back. And Jesus goes, receive it. Your faith has healed you. Now, I want to come into land on that word faith because that is the thing that healed him. Let me just say something about miracles because there is a big, unashamed biblical miracle here, isn't there? We're being told that a man received his sight like that when he was blind. Sometimes people find biblical miracles strange. They're incredulous about them because they're outside the natural order of things. I understand that. I think it is worth bearing in mind that there are four types of miracle and I bet you believe in more of them than you think. I got this from an author called Andrew Wilson. I've put it on your sheets there. Do you see, if, if you want to follow, there's some down on the bottom right. Four types of miracle. Firstly, <clears throat> bodily he- healing bodily healing like one of my children grazed their heel last week they got a little cut um, from something scraping them and within minutes the blood cells in their body had started to coalesce and coagulate and by the next day I looked at it and there was a a scab on the graze which is normal isn't it but that is, a, that is a miracle that we, we should not grow dull to. You know, the minute you cut yourself, your, your body goes, and it starts to heal it. Why? It's incredible that your body should heal itself. But God has built that into the fabric of you so that you get bodily miracles more often than we probably realize. He's healing our bodies on a daily basis. Bodily healing. Second type of miracle, um, of healing miracle, is, um, is medical healing. <clears throat> So if you go to a pharmacy, say on Green Lanes, and you get your antibiotics or your special cream or your pills, and you put them in your body and you do what you were hoping they would do, then God is healing your body through the wonder of medical science. And he put all the things in place in order for the pharmacologist to be able to make the pills and the creams. It's incredible. If you go to hospital for surgery and the surgeons with all their training and the skill and all the staff in the theater get together and they slice open your body in order to stitch you up and heal you, I would say that's a miracle of modern medicine, isn't it? That, that you don't hopefully suffer any after effects from that. It's amazing. And yet we overlook those sorts of things that are happening in hospitals all over London every day. So that's a medical healing, bodily healing, medical healing. Thirdly, instantaneous healing, which is what we're dealing with today. I do believe, and the Bible reports, um, a sort of healing like by the roadside in Jericho, where in response to Jesus and to prayer, in response to a genuine prayer in Jesus' name, the creator God is able to go, there you go. And he's able to heal people. I believe that happened in the Bible and I believe that God is doing it somewhere in the world today on a wonderful daily basis. Instantaneous healing. So you've got bodily, you've got medical, you've got instantaneous healing. And then fourthly, best of all, you've got resurrection healing. And that is the kind of healing where at the end of time, Jesus will return and all the dead in Christ will rise. 
And all of us who are still awake in Christ will go to meet him and be with him forever. And he will give a new body, Philippians 3.20. And all of the things, all of the aches and the pains in your body, and all of the things that trouble you, and all the ways in your body is obviously fallen at the moment, will be gloriously undone. And you'll receive this shining new body. And there's this sort of resurrection healing that the Bible promises you, which I bet you, if you're a Christian, you already believe in, that is coming. And that's going to be the best wave of healing of all. Four types of healing. Where does this leave us? Well, this is Jesus' last miracle before he dies. And if Luke intended to sum up in a story so much of what he's taught us, then what should we do? Well, it actually comes down to something very simple. It's there in verse 42, do you see? Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Faith. Do you have faith? You've got to have faith. As um, that famous Wham song goes, which, um, which I love. But um, this is more than just a catchy tune. You know, it's more than just a novelty. It's more something that you can take or leave. Not just a hobby for some people, not for others. You have to have faith, please. This is the Bible insisting as we reach towards the end of the gospel, this deadly mission that Jesus is on. You, you have to have faith. Do you have faith? Just notice how much faith encompasses here. We're going to dwell on the last few phrases before I finish. It says, your faith has healed you. So nothing else but faith in Jesus, the son of David, would have done for this beggar. Nothing else would have elicited that response from Jesus. To nothing else would he have said, okay, that has healed you. But faith has healed him. Faith in Jesus is the one key that unlocks the door of heaven. It is the one thing that that caused Jesus' ears to prick up above the crowd and have him stop and say, what was that? Did I hear some faith? Did I hear faith in the son of David? That's what I'm talking about. So your faith has to be the one thing that this comes down to in the gospel. Notice it also says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. So this is an active faith. It's a faith that follows Jesus. It's not just an intellectual ascent. It's not just a having of information, but it's a faith that gets acted upon. It's a faith that gladly leaves behind whatever blanket and coins he'd collected that day. And it's a faith that doesn't just end up in a sort of dull cul-de-sac. You know, you you could have a sort of middle-aged faith which thinks, I've been a Christian for a while. I know some stuff about the Bible, been to some Bible studies, been to church, know what to say, know the songs. But actually, this is not some sort of beige suburban cul-de-sac of your life. This is, wow, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus along the road, and and it's just going to get more exciting the more I follow him. We're going to have some adventures together. It's It's a breathless, what did you just do, Jesus, sort of worship. So faith follows Jesus. And then notice it also says, he followed Jesus praising God. And then just to reinforce it, the last thing it says is, when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So faith ends up praising. Would you agree? You've got to have that sort of faith. There's lots I could say here, and uh, my time is nearly done, but look, only a gospel of justification by faith alone ends up bringing glory to God and not to man. This is, this is really important. I'd love you to get the hang of this in the long term. Actually, if you, if you end up saying that anything that I do can save you, then that ends up rebounding in, look at Peter, he's, isn't he great? Or look at you and your good works. And, and in heaven, we'll be giving each other rounds of applauses. I'm not interested in that. I don't want to go to heaven and, and give everyone else a round of applause. I want to praise Jesus. Because the gospel that says your faith has healed you is not really anything in the beggar alone. He's, he's just realized who Jesus is. 
and put his trust in him. That's why the beggar leaves marveling at God's generosity and mercy. And ultimately, no one in glory will be there because of their own glory. They'll be there because of God's. You know, in the world today, I think there is an increasing realization that our own human heroes are pretty disappointing. You ever had that experience? You loved a celebrity and they turned out to be a bit of an idiot. You loved someone in your family and you, time went on and you sort of realized, oh, you're pretty imperfect actually. You love someone and they let you down. Well, if you've grown disillusioned with your heroes, then try this. How about there's just, there's just one hero? There's just, there's just one guy that God sent down to be the perfect son of David, the Messiah, the perfect sinless one who would never disappoint. And it would be appropriate and fine, in fact, joyful to spend all of eternity praising him and thinking, the more time I spend with you, the more I follow you, the more amazing you are. And that's why faith doesn't lead to glory to man, but glory to God. If you're not yet a Christian, but you're intrigued by Jesus, then look, this is not a secret. You just need to focus in on him like that blind beggar had this laser focus on Jesus. He's the son of David. He's on a mission. And you need to cry out to him for mercy. Look, I've tried to, I've tried to tell you in one sermon what I think you need to know. You need to know who he is, the son of David. You need to know that he's on a mission. He's going to go and explode sin and death from the inside by his own death and resurrection and you need to come and follow him with faith rest assured he's much better than you even think he is now and <clears throat> if you've been a Christian for, for, for a while then can I just encourage you there's, there's much more than a sort of bland saltless everyday cold porridge sort of Christianity you know I'm not interested in that. I don't want to settle for that. And I hope you won't either. Because God is beckoning you through this amazing story to this man's joy. You could, you could have the sort of joy that this blind beggar had. And if you're not there yet, then that, I'm just actually more excited for you because I think there's more joy in store than you yet realize. So my friends, as we turn into 2024, will you have faith? It seems to me at the start of a new year, we have a new opportunity new opportunity to come after Jesus with this, with this faith. I'm not talking about 2023's faith. So don't actually talk to me about, okay, I was a Christian last year, so I'll just do the same again. No, no, I want, I want new joy for you in 2024. I'm not talking about 10 years ago faith. Well, I was sort of, in 2014, I was a Christian, so I guess I'll do the same. No, no, because he's better than you think. Come after him with fresh faith and joy. I'm not talking about 1994's faith or however far back you want to wind the clock. I'm talking to you about 2024. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as it says in the Bible. This blind beggar couldn't have known what was coming. You know, he couldn't have known that in Jerusalem, 17 miles to the south, down the road, Jesus would be murdered. He couldn't have known all that lay before him in sorrow, but, but I bet you as he journeyed through Easter with Jesus, his faith in Jesus only grew and grew and grew. And he wouldn't have minded, would he? Because beggars can't be choosers. Let's pray. Oh Lord God Almighty, we, along with this blind beggar by the road in Jericho, want to say to you, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, I feel we, we have a handle on who you are and who, who Jesus Christ is. Maybe we, we have 
an inkling of your mission, but, but would you fill it in, Father, and through pictures like this, through stories, through the joy of men like this blind beggar, would you put flesh on the bones and faith in our hearts for 2024? Would you lead us after Jesus, we pray, in this active, laser-focused, joyful faith that ends up praising God? I pray, Father, for all my brothers and sisters here. I pray you might lead us in the way of Christ, even when it leads towards Jerusalem. And we ask it in his name. Amen.